because, because I'm a hot I'm girl. A hot, I'm girl. A hot, girl. I do hot, hot shit. Agenda, the only podcast on the left that matches your mood ring. <laughs> I'm Rara, and with me is my co-host Yessi. That was like a really, really like Pee Wee Herman intro. No, <laughs> I loved it though. Bring back mood rings. I see that those alligator hair clips are coming back. Bring back oh, mood yes, rings. Yes, yes. I yeah, want to know I exactly so how I'm feeling. Yeah, exactly. I need a piece of jewelry to tell me. Yeah, I really should have had a more somber intro for the. <laughs> <laughs> the content we're about to be like recording right now but you know what that's kind of how it is on this show it's no, like it's good we we um we're a land of contrast here mm, uh, we exactly. contain multitudes yes uh yes and speaking of multitudes what's on the agenda today yes oh wow i am absolutely thrilled to welcome the founding editor of one of the most incisive and kind of prescient media publications that's that's around right now it's like really great reporting really really diverse breadth of reporting mainline so the founder of mainline zine uh founding editor uh asia arnold asia how are you Hi, I'm so good, and I'm all for bringing the mood rings back. I <laughs> want a mood ring to tell me how I feel so I can feel confused about it. Learning how to be one with my feelings, you know, and we're complicated humans. So to simplify it in a mood ring color would be great. Let's bring that back. Oh, yeah. um, Absolutely. No, thank you for the intro. That was very sweet. I'm very happy to be here. Thanks. Yeah, and yeah. we're super excited to talk to you. Um, we've been meaning to get you on the show for a while now. Um, I think I've been like trying, I've been, you know, keeping it in the back of my head since the uprisings last year. Mm. And, you know, just like all the reporting that was being done on that. Um, but before we kind of get into into that, um, can you tell us just a little bit about Mainline Zine and a little bit of like its origin story? Yeah, I'll try and do that as succinctly as possible. Um, mainline Zine, or you know, our proper name, the Mainline, but as known as Mainline Zine on Instagram and Twitter, um, was founded by me, and we launched in July 2019 uh, with a print issue. We were more print focused before COVID, um, and then it made sense to be all digital after COVID. I think people could gather why. I started my professional writing career. I always knew I wanted to be a journalist um, since I was very young, but I started um, as a music writer at Creative Loafing uh, while I was finishing up my degree at Georgia State, and uh, I studied sociology in conjunction with journalism, my major. So that was a good juxtaposition that like helped inform my reporting um, after the uprisings in the wake of George Floyd and everything. So yeah, we're an independent press. We're free of corporate influence. Um, we don't have that means we don't have any outside funding, which brings its own. You know, we're 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 straight up in the journalism crisis and the local journalism collapse. Like Mainline was founded as like it was born out of frustrations that I had at Creative Living during that local journalism collapse, local journalism crisis. Being a woman in journalism, I'm just still kind of like taking in just like the plights that like women have. So today, I'll just fast forward to today, we're really, we're a unit of like five women now, uh, which is different than how it started. And we are committed to creating like a safe and formidable place for women, women of color in particular, non-binary folks, femmes, and 
queer folks to have a place in journalism and media because, you know, um, in the journalism industry, 62% of journalists out there are men and women are still minorities in decision-making roles. So we're here to like counter that um, and correct a severe imbalance in 20, almost 2022. It's insane that that's still like the stats of the journalism industry. So that's, um, yeah, that's a riff. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Very cool. So what would you say has been the most challenging aspect of running um, something like the mainline? I mean, as far as like as a journalist and as an editor? Um, uh, I mean, a lot. <laughs> we're kind of coming out of it now. We um, we were gifted like some financial help very recently that will keep us going till May 1st of this year. And we're focusing on gathering more resources through community. But I think it's like what a lot of people faced, you know, um, 60 plus newsrooms went under in 2020. So wow. we were facing- I didn't realize that. Yeah, yeah. So it's a miracle that we're here, frankly. And it is like the community, like every person that has donated like $5 here, $5 a month, and then like, ranging from $5 to like the larger donation that we just received to like sustain us um, has really carried us. But I think on a personal level, um, I think just like being such a, you know, being a direct member of our communities, and just really feeling all the growing pains and the crises that we were all feeling and like holding space for that while trying to so much of my reporting was so much driven of just like I just want us to have like proof of like what happened when the city of Atlanta was responding to our defund police movement because I knew that Mm -hmm. it was gonna get all fucked up like I knew they were gonna fuck with it so fast forward to this year it's like you know just building a case and having evidence of everything but just a lot of work and doing like basically 10 whole ass jobs for a year but you know it's starting to pay off now I don't have any regrets because you know we're on the up and yeah it's a yin and yang of both that's good to hear that you um, the guys are getting funded um, at least until May. And yeah, I'm a supporter of your Patreon and I've, I've been a huge fan of the publication for a while now. And I'm always like the biggest cheerleader whenever people like, you know, tell me like, where do you read your news? You know, mm-hmm. how are you getting all this analysis? And I'm like, you got to check out the main line. It's like, I feel like a crazy person sometimes because it feels like there's so few truth tellers anymore in journalism, like mm-hmm. real truth tellers that are kind of um, separate from corporate interests and imperial interests and Mm -hmm. i was wondering um like what was your personal journey to getting to like this if you want to summarize that uh your personal journey to like realizing this is the path you needed to take um what was like the kind of catalyst for that yeah it's kind of funny i watched the harry i watched harry at the spy when i was like 10 years old and that's like actually that i wanted to be like a documentarian and um a writer. Um, and then somehow that morphed. And I just always knew from that point, it's like kind of a weird starting point, but that's what happened. And I mean, I, I think just, I just followed that. I not, I'm not a fiction writer. Like I'm not really into fiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's kind of, and then I started reading like Joan Didion when I got like a little bit older and I really like that. I just really love telling our stories. And then I think of course being like, someone who's been subjected to gendered and sexual violence and just like the truth is so the truth and like we are the expert of our own experiences is something that I hold like in the center right so it's like it's really informed a lot of my reporting and journalism 
to just be able to tell our story. And when I say our, I mean like working class people. I mean like people in the margins, people who have been told that they don't matter. And that's why I was like, you know, last summer, I was like, I didn't want to talk to cops. You know, I have like issues. I have history of being detained and arrested. And I, it makes no fucking sense to me that people still quote cops like in articles. It makes it makes no sense. They are incentivized to lie. So right. it's rigged. The media is just as rigged, I think, as the criminal punishment system. So my personal journey, I don't, and then, you know, I'm, I'm also a recovered drug addict and alcoholic. That definitely informs my experience when it comes to truth telling um, and gaining, like, because it's all about, like, finding, like, alternative, like, new perspectives to, like, free us from, like, shitty paradigms that don't work, you know, and tapping into a source of power to, in the interest of our liberation, right? And um, so much of, like, what we're told all the time through media is to, like, keep us in a certain paradigm. And, like, the thing that I, I'm very interested in, like, empowerment journalism at the core and just helping people realize that, like, you're, we're more powerful than we think we are. It's like, for example, the great resignation is happening and not a single like mainstream outlet is reporting on the great resignation the way that they should be. They're like leaving out an entire part of the story. There's not a lot of solution oriented journalism. Like when the evictions and the housing crisis was happening in the light of COVID, like AJC, the thing that got me that summer that before the uprising started was that like, AJC did a whole report about the housing crisis. I'm like, why didn't they talk to the Housing Justice League? That made no sense to me. I was like, well, okay, so it's really bad. But like, if I'm in this situation, where do I turn for a solution? So that, so those are like some, you know, some things that have informed Mainline and pushed us to like where we are today. And I'm really grateful to hear that it's like impactful, you know, because I also have been on the other side of a table with uh, when I was starting mainline meeting with other people in Atlanta who were like leaders in this field that were all cishet white men and being told like, well, you need to do da 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 da. And I was like, I don't want to do that. I don't think it should be that way. So like, I'm not going to do that. And they're like, well, how are you going to make money? I'm like, I don't fucking know. And then like COVID happened and I was one of the lucky freelancers that got unemployment so I just like lived off of unemployment until June of this year. And that's what sustained me to do mainline full time for the first time. So that's incredible. And I think it really speaks to like the the importance of of supporting media that reflects reflects our our values, right? Like if you don't want the media in the pocket of corporations, like we do have to create a community of support. Mm-hmm. So you were saying you were a a music writer for a time. Uh, The music uh, writing industry, music journalism is like very historically white guy Mm -hmm. arena. Um, I'd love to hear more about that, especially since uh, the mainline has such a robust uh, music journalism uh, uh, bent toward it in terms of its like political political bent and also the, the social bent. There's this huge music component and that really attracted me. So I'd love to hear about your experience as a music writer. Yeah. And shout out to Autumn James for that, because after the protest started and I jumped into gears, I'm just going to focus on like what our community needs right now in this area. But Autumn James then became our senior music editor and has been doing that since like the spring of 2020. So shout out to Autumn and everyone that contributes that. She's doing a great job. Yeah, she's like holding up, she's helping, I think, our local music community in so many ways. And like, I mean, on a local level, I mean, and it's broad too. Like you said, it it is a boys' club still, as is like 
journalism, you know, the 62% number of like men having the yeah. lines in the industry. Mm -hmm. And that definitely permeates into the music industry at large. I think it's like um, a big paradigm shift we're going to see in all industries. Yeah. And in Atlanta, like, um, like at, at Creative Loafing is, uh, I'm going to be like cautious here. But yeah, it's um, a lot of, I think, white dudes like making calling all the shots, you know, and there's so much great. I just remember it was the first time I was ever kind of like censored for something and something was published without my mm -hmm. consent. And it was just weird. And someone in another outlet was like, well, that's just the way it is. I'm like, well, I don't think it should be that way. So at Mainline, we're all like consent based, which means like if you write for us, you are there with every step of the editing process and nothing. Oh, that's incredible. Yeah. And I know that's, that's not awesome. like an industry norm, but I think it should be right. So it's like, well, why is that the norm? But, you know, in Atlanta, the music the music scene is so, so special. And we've been thinking about this a lot because Autumn's been working on this like really special documentary project about an indie band called The Balkans. I don't know if y'all remember them, um, but um, they released an album, I think in 2010 or 11, it's their 10 year anniversary. But I was like good, good friends with a lot of local musicians, like the Double Phantom crew, which was a lo record, local record label and friends and carnivores and like Abby Gogo and Balkans and like we're all like grown up now and like some people are still playing music some folks from carnivores went on to be Omni which is one of the more popular bands but the music writing was so special because I've always really loved music and it's such a way to like connect with people and one thing that I really want to see like it's something I really want to return to because I just think it's so important for us to remember that like we are not the sources of our oppression and yeah. we are not defined by oppression and music is such a like liberating force uh, for us to connect with each other. And I think like the revolution is greater told through like art and music more than like reporting. Totally. <laughs> you know? I always, so. I always think about music as like uh, an avenue for prefigurative politics. Like music mm -hmm. is the space that we see our future, right? Like music is the space that we see the imagine the possible. Right. And so mm -hmm. it's really cool that you're like bringing in that focus and you have, you know, Autumn creating that space for that too. Um, and it's part of the ethos of the publication. I think that's rad. Yeah. I mean, Mainline definitely started out as more like music because that's what, what my section was at Creative Loafing. And that's like really what I do. If I could like, I was like, I don't want to be writing about city council. I would rather be like talking with people about music and art, you know, but I think that we needed to do what we needed to do to like keep an eye on it, but it's all connected. So I'm glad that that's coming through in our ethos and that, you know, it feels interconnected in that way. That makes me really happy. Hell yeah. So on the mainline website, you describe uh, being on the ancestral lands of the Muscogee Creek Nation. You know, I don't know if you ever saw like any kind of like discourse about this uh, happening in online spaces, but some people feel that it's performative to like do things like land acknowledgement um, mm -hmm. in like your Twitter bio on your website or whatever, that it like doesn't fulfill any kind of like function other than virtue signal, virtue signaling. Um, why do you feel it's important to include that information when we talk about the land we're on? Um, I mean, I want to say first that I agree about like how land acknowledgements are largely extremely performative. And I've heard of institutions like Emory University, for example. I um, recently interviewed Dr. Craig Womack, who is um, a Creek native who is living in the Southeast, which is very rare considering the like forced genocide and displacement of Creek people. 
Um, so he was explaining in the interview that he felt a responsibility as an individual to carry like his ancestors' traditions through like orating or through his teachings. He's a professor of literature, not history, but he still like carries the history with him. And when Emery wanted to do a land acknowledgement, um, he was skeptical of it, he said. And, you know, that Emory University and the Oxford campus specifically was built on the black on the backs of, you know, black folks who were forced here um, and indigenous people who were then forced out. But yeah, I mean, long story, I mean, he said that it felt performative and then he's like, okay, well, I'll like participate. And then he created, he summarized a very complicated history of harm in like a three paragraph summary. And then their response was like, well, we can't fit that in our press release. It's too long. And he was like, y'all didn't say anything for like 160 years. And my three paragraphs is too long for you. And that is like, that is the thing, the nature of most land acknowledgements. For Mainline, our mm-hmm. land acknowledgement didn't come online until earlier this year. Um, and it was very, I only did that when it felt, you know, and that was something that I did, you know, as founding editor. Um, I didn't really consult with anybody, but it was a very spiritual experience that I had. Um, I was on the West, I'm on the West Coast right now visiting, but I was um, in Seattle for nine months this year. And I, it's a long story. I was on a walkabout and I ended up there uh, doing a house sitting gig and like doing some therapy, but I was driving and there's a lot of like land acknowledgements visible, like in like these mm-hmm. areas. And we just don't have that in Georgia, you know, in the Southeast for um, various reasons. Um, and it just hit me one day when I was driving back from Aberdeen, I was doing some like music journalism work. I connected with these kids in a band and that's like Kurt Cobain's hometown. So I was just kind of like having a day trip and I was driving back and the land was so beautiful, but I was listening to like, you know, I think a podcast about decolonization and it just like, I felt it very deep in my soul that like, you know, the, the land isn't something that we like conquer it's something that generates our life. Like it's a life giving source and like, we should give thanks for that and acknowledge its history if we're going to even begin. So to eradicate the harms cause and correct those harms cause and heal ourselves. So I had never done that for Mainline and Atlanta has given me so much as much as I like um, get irritated by the things happening there. It's like, that's my hometown. That was our, that was our step, but it is like, it is a first step, you know, it's like, it's like you do that and then there's action and more action. Right. So I agree with the critics of land acknowledgements because if you're only doing that and nothing else, then it is performative. Yeah, absolutely. Total agreement. Yeah, I mean, I'm curious to hear what y'all think. I, I hate to be like the journalist on a podcast because like, and then interview you. Oh. <laughs> no, like, no, I'm, we like, love I'm that. like holding back, but like, I'm, I'm not used to being on this side, you Don't know. Hold back. We lo- we want to have no, a conversation like, with you. Yeah, 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 I mean, I'm curious like what y'all think because yeah, I mean, Mainline put out that land acknowledgement, but it was very important to me that you know there was like a pretty clear next step course of actions to take, which I can talk about. But I'm curious, like, yeah, your thoughts on it as well. I'm I'm of the same kind of thinking. Um, I, I'm I'm kind of like skeptical when I run across, you know, uh, like a land mm-hmm. acknowledgement and a Twitter bio just doesn't really capture the full like, mm-hmm. you know, kind of necessity that's needed. But it's also like, how else do you communicate where you're where you're at and like that you're trying to respect this concept of of land acknowledgement. Um, but I think in a lot of cases it can be very performative because it isn't really followed by any concrete actions as to like, you know decolonize or give the you know give the land actually back to the people that are you know Mm -hmm. that are still around because the muskogee nation is you know located in oklahoma right now right Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah so there's still like there are a lot you know this is a thriving nation it's got over eighty two thousand 
you know, citizens. So it's so it's like a real living thing that has to be interpreted and has to have like momentum behind it for it to actually mean something. So I'm kind of like in agreement with you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I think context dictates the like and and materiality dictate like whether or not this is a a worthwhile thing to do. Like, right, like if an uh, an institution like a university that is like profiting off the like oppression and and literal like land taking for their, you know, for for the institution itself and for making profit, like if they do like a throwaway land acknowledgement, like that's that's bullshit, right? But like, you know, Mm -hmm. for example, um, I lived in San Diego for a really long time, just recently moved to LA, but um, in San Diego, you've got the the Kumeyaay Nation. And it's it's really fraught because the Kumeyaay don't really, like their, um, their like recognition uh, in the by the Office of Tribal Affairs is like up for debate. And so like, and their nation is also bisected by the border, right? So mm-hmm. all of the Kumeyaay who live, who, who got cut off from their families in Mexico, like don't get recognition by the, um, the Office of Tribal Affairs, right? Like they don't count. And so land acknowledgement there is like really highly politicized. And it's a very like, charged thing to do to say like this is kumiai land because mm-hmm. for all intents and purposes the state says they don't exist mm-hmm. um as mm-hmm. a way to like not give them resources mm-hmm. and i like i'm talking about the federal level in california they do have some protections and some you know some rights as indigenous like a indigenous bands and indigenous tribes but on the state level they don't and so like i think you know in that regard like it is very powerful to do um i think it also kind of speaks to um when we're talking about performativity um and this kind of gets in a little bit towards talking about decolonization um when we're talking about things especially like in places like on social media um when we're talking about terms that have very specific political and you know social like uh scopes Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes they get flattened out when we are um, talking about them on social media. So one of the pieces you shared with us, like decolonization is not a metaphor, I think really like hit that kind of point for me in the gut. Um, so I wanted to talk to you about like, how do you understand decolonization? How do you see it being kind of flattened or not? Um, and kind of your your views on that? Yeah, I mean, and I'm actually going to be in LA uh, very soon. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'd love to like hit you up and yeah, see if we can do. have like a conversation offline and in LA. Um, Definitely. We'll info because I'm on another walkabout. Nice. Um, as part of my decolonization process, you know, resting and uh, connecting with land and other things. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, and to answer your question, that is kind of part of my answer um, is that like, for me, decolonization is not a metaphor, you know, it's a very academic paper, but I'm like in a, um, you know, and really speaking and orating and conversational mm. stuff is like how I process information. And I think that like, Rara, you were touching on it earlier, just um, and both of you really about how Twitter, like land acknowledgments on Twitter is never going to capture the spirit of like decolonization. That's why it's just kind of like a right. first step, you know, and I think so many people back away from it, because it's such a humbling process, because it's like you make a land acknowledgement, like I fucked up the first one that I ever did. And that's like humbling, you know, for someone to be like, hey, so it's actually like, this is the right way to say it, da, da, da. like I'm, mm-hmm. you know, producing my first report in conjunction with Muscogee Creek people about the stomp dance ceremony that took place a couple weekends ago in Atlanta, um, which you could say is like 
a full-on land acknowledgement, like tribal members from Hellape ceremonial grounds in eastern Oklahoma migrated together with families and other tribal members that are in Alabama and Georgia to go to the South River Forest where they want to build Cop City in Atlanta to do the stomp dance ceremony. And that was like such a significant event. Yeah. And there was like no, I don't think there's been, from what I gather from talking with the Miko, who is, you know, essentially the tribe, the community leader of the Hellape ceremonial grounds um there hadn't been an event like that since forced removal and like from what i understand from another indigenous organizer that i connected with because that was one of my first courses of action so in answering your question i'm just talking about like what i've done right so like how it's not a metaphor it's like it's more than a land acknowledgement like we made that land acknowledgement the stop cop city campaign was going on cop city vote and council happens and that shit like fucked me up <laughs> and and sometimes i say like that shit fucked me up but in a good way because it causes me to spiral up instead of spiral down and one thing i was frustrated with in the organizing in the city is that like everything was going so so fast which is part of our like capitalist and white supremacist culture that like making those connections to muskogee creek was out of the question because we were in such a cramped timeline which is like understandable right. But as soon as we were out of it, it's like one of the, I was one of a handful or bigger than a, a couple handful of community members that were like, we should connect with indigenous people. Mm-hmm. So I like to say decolonization is not a metaphor, it's a lifestyle. Um, right. And it takes time, you know, yeah. same with abolition and mutual aid. I, I Decolonization, abolition, mutual aid mm-hmm. um, are the three, you know, areas of a workshop that I'm doing hosted by the Southern Movement Assembly. There's a ton of resources to plug into and like do it together, you know. Yeah, I, th- this is like such an interesting, um, you know, because I, there's a reason I put the land back question uh, or the land acknowledgement question in the front because I'm, you know, you recently told me when we were talking about doing this episode and seeing what we want to discuss, you were saying how you wanted to talk about the, the Muscogee uh, tribe or the nation and how you wanted to talk about decolonization specifically. And I just think it's so interesting that this is a blurb on a website can turn into this whole project of community building and um, really making bridges into uh, areas where people were never like considering before, especially between the very like gentrified uh, leftist movement in the city and uh, Mm -hmm. progressive movement in the city and actual like radical decolonization and radical, um, you know, community here. Mm -hmm. And I basically want to make this a resource for people looking to kind of follow the same path as you or maybe kind of start their own path. Where would you say was like the base level of involvement that you got in that you got into as far as like decolonization? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I think let me think of how to like answer that succinctly. I mean, I think honestly, like the cop city vote and city council was like a huge opening for me that like broke me open. I did six reports in 48 hours um, around that vote. And that's something I'm never, ever going to do again. But I'm still recovering from like burnout and fatigue and exhaustion, Um, not just from those 48 hours, but the campaign on top of it. And like what our city is doing right now is it's the fucked upness is beyond measure. Like I just, I would love to hear more of how you all have been impacted by like the stop cop because I know Rara, at least you, I know you've been involved in like some organizing and I would just like to hear how you were impacted because it's been helpful to connect with people in organizing and being vulnerable about like, you know, 
how we're feeling, the fucked up feelings we're having. But I think for Mm -hmm. me, the opening portal is that realization is just like, I'm not the one that's like fucked up. It's the Mm -hmm. system and the paradigm that I'm living in. And like, once I kind of like clicked that, it's like, once I kind of realized that I was just like the only way out is like an inside out approach. If we're going to like jump out of this like loop that keeps mm-hmm. happening in Atlanta, it's like a fucking trauma loop or something that's yeah. just happening over and over and over. To jump out of that, it's like we have to like go into this like root, go to the root cause. And that's like, you know, Angela Davis has like radical, just simply means mm-hmm. something by the root, you know, yeah. and finding the inner connection between it. And um, so I don't know if that answered that question, but it really started with community building and talking with someone and be like, yo, and being vulnerable, just like, I feel fucked right. up, you know, like, I don't have this together. I don't know what the fuck, I don't know how to stop this. Like, who are the people that we need to like connect with? And it's, mm-hmm. that's how we build resilience, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I wasn't directly involved with organizing around Cop City, but I was kind of like boosting where I could. I was donating mm-hmm. to I was donating to Dark, which was mm-hmm. defund APD refund communities. So I so I was like trying to be as supportive where I could be, but I was also like privy to some of the, you know, internal strife that was happening among like the DSA and uh dark organizers, the local DSA I should say. And that was kind of a spirit killer honestly like it really sucked to see the kind of uh demand for productivity from Mm. you know elements of elements of dsa leadership that really strained community relations and Mm -hmm. around cop city and around um the defund project and so when the vote finally came down and it was awful i was like expecting it but I wasn't ready for how bad it was going to feel anyway, you know, like it's still I was preparing myself for the emotions that would come up, but it still like really, really sucked. Mm -hmm. And of course, in the wake of anything big like this, a lot of stuff comes to light. So all this stuff about between dark and DSA came out and really kind of crushed my like spirit Mm. for organizing and i was also just dealing with the fatigue and dealing with the burnout um i'm a i used to be a harassment grievance officer for my dsa chapter which Mm -hmm. is like basically a mediator role and taking on like really serious issues so i was burnt out from that i was burnt out from following the news i was burnt out from you know waiting for my friends to get out of trial for being arrested the year before for mm-hmm. uh, in the uprising, um, had mm-hmm. many friends arrested, unfortunately. And, you know, just all the stress and all the heartbreak from all that. And it really like it really kind of destroyed me. And uh, so I'm still kind of recovering and finding my place in the movement again. And that's why I'm very interested in aligning myself more with uh, decolonization and aligning myself more with uh, First Nations uh, leaders and and with local leaders, because I just feel like there's something kind of disjointed about the way people organize in Atlanta. It can mm-hmm. be very like marketing based and mm-hmm. not very community based. Like, you know? like it's, it's very like slogany. It's very it. like toxic positivity um, and, and which can be, which is like incredibly destructive. Right. Like and people have right to be angry. Like people, yes, people and don't a lot of tone you know as a person who's an indigenous pacific islander who has you know i can't live on my own home because it's so freaking expensive that like almost everyone i know in my family in my like immediate family has moved away 
um there's only like there's only like five people left on guam in my family um in my like you know my grandmother's family and it's like really it's gut-wrenching every day to think about it that i would love to go home but it's like i am now like part of the diaspora of people Mm -hmm. that you know have been completely separated from their roots and like and it's like a really violent legacy uh to to have on your fucking shoulders Mm -hmm. but i also realized like you know just because i grew up on guam uh as an indigenous person it doesn't mean that i was immune to the colonial aspects of my existence Mm -hmm. like i i was still internalizing a lot of like misogyny a lot of um Mm -hmm. you know a lot of uh, like authority ideas about authority and community and things like that and basically now i'm kind of in the process of just reading of kind of like exploring my own culture more and Mm -hmm. reconnecting with those concepts that existed before capitalism came and you know fucked everything up so (laughs) Yeah. So yeah. So I think I feel like we're probably kind of like in the same headspace there. I think yes, you might be a little bit further along. Well, in a sense. it's not a race, but like one thing, <laughs> I it's so rad that you're here, kind of like really just laying this shit out, Asia, because like we've been talking to a lot of different people um, on the podcast. That like, what does it mean to be, you know, a non mainland indigenous? person of color what does it mean to be a diaspora like part of a diasporic community Mm -hmm. and what is our like implication in terms of like responsibility to to like a movement for um uh you know like land back or a movement towards um indigenous autonomy and you know uh growth right like so you know uh one of the things we've we've talked about is like the complications of like mestizaje for example like we talk about that a lot you know what does it mean to be like both like the product of both like um, an indigenous group, but also a, a directly violent colonizing force. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, and so I like in thinking about um, decolonization and in thinking about the acute flattening of the word, when you call everything like decolonize your diet, decolonize right. this, decolonize that, it, it, it takes away the specific meaning. And, and another thing that it does is it alleviates the responsibility or tension of of being part of a group that may be like a setter a seller right mm-hmm. uh, like for example like you know i'm you know i'm of mexican descent you know i'm Ch- chicane that is a very very much a settler group we may be like people of color we may be oppressed but it's a very like settler group and and in a, mm-hmm. in a way like the group itself tried to get rid of that like settler identity by like creating this like fucked up fake indigenous identity (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um and so i think i i I would love to hear more more from you about how you're like grappling with that like you know it's kind of like how in in the early aughts and 90s everyone in academia was calling everything queer like queering this queering like you Mm -hmm. know queering the war industry like it's just like shut up it's not fucking queering like stop doing this so i want to know like how are you like traversing that space as it gets more and more flattened the word decolonization yeah i mean and i mean it's more and more of like turning inward and like opting out you know um and i i love that y'all are sharing more about your lineages and um you know i don't think a lot of people know this but i'm part colombian so mm. my grandfather immigrated here from Colombia, which is like such a complicated history because like Colombia was, you know, a part of a colonization project of like European settler colonialism. Mm-hmm. Like over 90% of Colombians are white. 
So like my family, you know, and of course there are like people of color in Colombia, but, um, you know, my family, like, you know, we're called gringos, you know, and like when I went to the motherland to visit, I met so many family members that like didn't believe I was related to them because I have blue eyes and like I have my last name is I have my dad's last name, which is mm-hmm. Arnold. And like, you know, my I, I've been like, I want to take on my mom's name, my family name, which is Bonet. But like my um, grandfather, when he immigrated here, as far as I can tell, I was estranged from him. But just, you know, my mom is like one to three kids. They all have Anglo names, you know, and like he doesn't, doesn't even pronounce the last name that the way they do at home, you know, um, yeah. at home it's Bonet and he came here and it's like, it's Bonet, you know, so <laughs> my, you know, now my mom's name is Lisa Bonet, which is like whatever uh, that's amazing I know, <laughs> yeah. yeah it's like going to blockbuster as a kid which Legend. is a very, like which is a very old sentence talking about blockbuster but yeah, like yeah. people would be like so confused but but I mean it's like kind of you know just and also just not having like so that feeling of erasure is like something like not to, to be it can't be comparative at all and I think that like white supremacy wants us to be comparative you know and compare like the oppression Olympics is like what they call it. Yeah. Um, I know the feeling of like being erased um, as a survivor and then also through this like lineage of like not ever knowing my family's history in like Colombia and then feeling estranged from them because of the way that I look and then like not having Spanish passed down from my grandfather um which is a colonizer language I mean like I know that too it's the dumbest litmus test yeah. And that's like the thing is that it, it goes like on and on and on and on. It's like to, to a cellular level. So it's just like, I think the thing is that like folks, what I just encourage, like just like we all should accept that we are like byproducts of like mm-hmm. the European settler colonial projects like and it doesn't matter what we look like and I think as far as like organizing in Atlanta goes like and that's not the scope of our conversation today but we really need like anti-racist feminism and intersectionality in our movements like I have stepped away from organizing in the city because I gathered that organizing in Atlanta is not a safe space for women femmes and non-binary people except for the spaces that they have created for themselves so like at mainline we have just like created that space for ourselves and like my activism there's plenty of room for my activism in media like in this lane specifically that I don't need to do you know I don't have bandwidth to do anything else anyway you know Um, which I accept now but like as part of one of my like embodiments that something that I've like internalized in capitalism is definitely you know overworking and overperforming which is like I was thinking today internalized misogyny it's just like hypervigilance is such an internalized PTSD response and it's like our this industry journalism it rewards you for being hyper vigilant and I started mainline from a very wounded and traumatized PTSD place like I was mm-hmm. receiving therapy for PTSD this year I didn't even yeah. know I had it until this year when I was in Seattle receiving therapy and living off a of mutual aid part of my decolonization is for me it looks like I'm on a rental strike you know that is like one way that I am like embodying my decolonization and it's not more or less than like other people that's just like where I'm at right now you know Mm -hmm. and I'm talking with people that might be interested in doing that sharing like what that's going like but anyway PTSD is a good diagnosis to have when you have it (laughs) if you have PTSD and you don't know you have it it really fucking sucks (laughs) because you're just living it all the time but yeah I feel so much what you're saying right now um 
I do want to clarify, I identify as Indigenous Pacific Islander because um, I am Indigenous on my mother's side. So, mm-hmm. but I struggle with that same exact um, kind of like guilt a little mm-hmm. bit and kind of just like hyper awareness of my identity as also, you know, someone who is extremely white passing. Like, mm-hmm. um, you know, my entire life I've been like the only little white girl in like, mm-hmm. so I've, I've considered, you know, very white where I'm from, whereas I'll come to the States and people think I'm mixed or, you know, it's, it's more ambiguous, I guess. But my grandfather, you know, he was in the Navy and that's how he met my grandmother who's indigenous. So I come mm-hmm. from a very complicated background of, mm-hmm. you know, I love my grandfather, obviously, uh, but, you know, he was part of a, a force that came in and uh, was supposed to liberate the Chamorro from the Japanese and then liberated us, quote unquote, and then took all our land and pushed us out and created poverty conditions and, you know, is stripping us of our culture um, through just sheer force of will. And it's very difficult to like grapple with those two parts of my identity of like, this is where I came from, but this is also who I am is someone whose land is, you know, being occupied by an oppressive force. And, and, and it's very complicated to like juggle those emotions. And I think that's part of decolonization too, is like, is just acknowledging the contradictions within yourself and, Mm -hmm. and realizing like, it doesn't have to, the contradictions don't necessarily have to dictate how you go through with your life. Like you don't have to apologize for them constantly, just acknowledge that they're there and kind of like use that as part of your process. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And something that you said about the contradictions, it's like, we see that reflected out in like our external world, right? Like in our society at large, like America is a fundamental contradiction. You know, the Constitution says one thing, it's not, you know, abolition is like, kind of like, adjacent to this conversation, I feel like, but to me, it's like, there's always been different schools of thought of abolition, but everyone thinks of Frederick Douglass, who, you know, was basically saying that, like, America should live up to its promise. But, you know, then there's abolitionists that what I feel more alignment with is like, not nah, the Constitution, like it, it, they knew what they said, they said what they said. Yeah. They're like, they're like living up, it is living up to the promise. We, we, we needed a different set of promises to like go for, right. And that kind of starts with us. So I don't know, there's something to me about like decolonization, that's very spiritual, that it's really this kind of like inside out approach, you know, and it's just like, and I do believe that if we like start kind of doing these like internal rearrangements in ourselves, like starting with yourself, you know, and I totally relate. My grandmother on my mom's side was born in Jamaica, but she's their family's from Scotland. They were there as like Christian missionaries. So like, you know, it's all these complicated histories of harm. But like one thing I want to encourage folks to do, and it's so like counterintuitive and journalism. And this is one way I think that like media was like, American media systems were built to uphold white power structures, right? And one thing it goes back to like what Dr. Womack was saying about like, you know, Emery saying that the three paragraphs was too long for them. Um, we had to stop like short circuiting these complicated histories of harm in order to understand them and then to like uproot them and start mm. to heal them, you know. And I kind of go through that. I had an experience with a national outlet and I terminated my contract because I was writing about the 1906 race riots in Atlanta and the role that the journal and the Constitution, now the AJC, had in in that like those papers at the time stowed to the violence that led to the 1906 race riots and the result of those riots is what is imprinted in Atlanta today like what the elites and politicians did after that after those riots is like the same dynamics we have in Atlanta that's a whole other podcast but like I was working on this mm-hmm. article and I summarized like all this research and it was so funny it was like 
it was three paragraphs <laughs> and it was the same thing the editor wanted to pare it down to three sentences and i was like this has never been written about in any other outlet and this is like buried in hidden history and ajc has yet to reckon and be held right. accountable um so we're working on like a story package at mainline for media reparations in the city but that's just one example of like giving us the breadth and the spaciousness of doing that and resting. Like, I really hope organizers, and I use the term organizer relatively loosely when it comes to Cop City because, like, average people were becoming activated. And just to have yes. your voice heard, you had to organize. Like, if you want to mm-hmm. call your city council in Atlanta, you have to organize your fucking schedule to fit that three hour mm-hmm. window. Right. Yeah. And, like, <laughs> so we all became organizers. But I hope that everyone is resting. Like, I love Atlanta so much and we deserve so much better. But it's like, we have to, like, yeah. get ourselves a break and rest that's what I'm doing until next month yeah there was definitely a breakneck pace that everyone was going at and it's something that I think you can only really tell when you're in the actual city and I'm sure Yessi probably had that uh, similar kind of experience in in your city where it was just like this just so much tension and so much yeah um, so much not knowing what was going to happen or, you know, just preparing yourself for, you know, the next wave of shittiness. And I think we were all just kind of emotionally at that edge for so long, including with the pandemic, that everything just kind of tipped over after Cop City and people are just, you know, they're just, oh, I need a break. I need to stop what I'm doing and chill the fuck out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah. yeah, definitely a lull experience for sure (laughs) like post the like intensity yeah I mean I'm grateful for it because it gave me I just learned a lot of lessons surrounding burnout and Mm self-worth and value and I don't know it took me a long time to understand that like the self-sacrificing thing and activism that I think I fell under at least but I think a lot of people do it's actually not there's no virtue in that at all and I've been learning that a lot through like the decolonization workshop that I've been doing that meets Mm -hmm. once a month um until the springtime and it's just like come as you are and Mm -hmm. rest and like I just I I don't know decolonization has also taught me how to hold unconditional space for people and accept them for who they are and where they're at. And sometimes it's like us being sick and colonial thinking, you know, and like Mm -hmm. the productivity. I've been abolishing my, dismantling my productivity myths all year. Um, I talk about it on the Patreon. Um, It all started with this packet about from like the Minnesota, Minnesota, University of Minnesota about like the the principles of like white supremacy culture and Rara, mm-hmm. I don't know if you caught that episode, but it was myself and Chelsea Stone. Mm-hmm. I saw this packet and I was like, this is journalism in America. Yeah. <laughs> and we talked yeah. about it. That's on our Patreon. Um, yeah, I there was like some good conversations happening in the in our DSA chapter months ago about hyper productivity and how, um, you know, it is a symptom of like white supremacy of just expecting people to be just constantly, constantly on top of organizing projects. Like if you're not organizing, you're not doing the work. And it's like, I just I really hated that dynamic. It just it was very unforgiving. It was very it was really just put you on edge a lot of the time and made you feel bad when you couldn't live up to the expectations that were being, you know, that you were putting on yourself. And I, I've had like a very long journey of like trying to not be so, you know, productivity, productivity, branding, that kind of stuff. Like it's, it's hard. It's really hard because if you're like a creative person trying to do anything online, if you are a journalist, if you're anything, it's like you need 
so much to just survive in this environment that it it really like takes so much out of you and it's like i don't know why our organizing is trying to like chase after the same kind of dynamic because it's obviously not working you know yeah there's on the hamster wheel like one thing you said i just want to say like one thing that has to do with something i was thinking about this morning it's like hyper productivity is a tenet of white supremacist culture which is a very traumatic inducing culture and then like hyper vigilance is also like a ptsd response so it's kind of this vicious cycle of where you're being like systemically rewarded and also re-traumatized over and over again but it's like the only way you know how i don't know it's like the hamster yeah. wheel Jeez. yeah yeah, you can step off the hamster wheel is what I tell people. It's like, it's okay. I follow the Nat ministry and she said something like, you deserve a gentle life. And I was just like, I do. <laughs> you start yeah. crying. Ah. I know, it's like the only reason I like log on to Twitter for I'm, the algorithm is blessing me because it'll just be like Nat ministry. And then I see that and then I get off of Twitter. <laughs> Come on, Nat ministry. Like I love Nat okay. ministry. Like yes. slowing down. So it, you know, it reminds me of um, like what, what you were saying, Asia, and also Rara, what you were saying about like, why are we modeling our movements after this? Jonathan Crary had that book, uh, 24-7, and it's about how capitalism encroaches on every single aspect of our lives, every single moment of our lives, but the only moment they can't touch is sleep. Mm. They haven't figured out how to take sleep from us. Sleep is the one time we have we are fully free to do what we want, which is sleep, which is rest. And so we haven't figured out how to advertise in our dreams yet. Exactly, you mean? <laughs> exactly. And so like, that's why there's all this, like the push of advertising or like cultural understanding of ethic and, and, and hustle, right? Like your side hustles and this and that. Um, and then all of that is sort of a, a, an attack on sleep, which is our one space for true rest, our one space mm. that we that it's truly anti-capitalist because they can't market to us when we're sleeping. They can't like take that time from us. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then you get stuff like, you know, when Uber came out with those ads for to get drivers and they had that like kind of like very gaunt looking dark circles yeah. person who was like, who needs sleep? I'll sleep was that, when was I'm that dead. Was that Uber or Fiverr? Oh, I think it was Fiverr. Fiverr. Okay. It was yeah. one of those like gig economy same, things. Same thing. <laughs> yeah. Same thing. Mm-hmm. One of those gig economy things that was saying, like, you don't need to sleep. You just work for us. Like, yeah. And so, so the, the, like, what you're God, talking that's about. So messed up. I know. <laughs> like, it's so fucked. But, like, the restorative power of, like, stopping and, like, mm-hmm. moving towards, like, a different kind of producing, not like productivity in the sense of, like, capitalism and white supremacy and the hegemony, but, like, producing for the sake of, like, meaning. Mm hmm. It's mm-hmm. fucking rad. Yeah, and it, and it's also like when we're the most powerful. It's like opting mm-hmm. out is the most powerful thing. It's just like you just yeah. like oh not, you know, the power of not participating in the system is so great. I hope that I know we're like coming up on time, but I don't know. I just I hope that we can bring like decolonization education into labor organizing in this country. Mm-hmm. Because it's like, if you really just want to like take yourself out of the equation, because I think a lot of stuff gets like buried in semantics of like, well, we can't organize in Georgia because of the laws. I'm like, well, they're colonial laws. Like, next, like, (laughs) mutual aid systems, closed loop economies. Like, I don't know. That's where I stand. I just, I don't understand rules, I guess. (laughs) 
Yes, absolutely. Uh, and I know we didn't get around to discussing some of the, uh, the the two pamphlets you sent me, but I'm going to link our reader or our readers, our listeners to it uh, so that they can kind of uh, discuss it. And we'll probably discuss it on the Patreon or on the mm-hmm. Discord. The pamphlet you sent me was called it was like the four R's and the two uh, relate. Mm-hmm. And the two P's and the four R's are relationship, responsibility, reciprocity, and redistribution uh, versus the two P's, power and profit. And it's about, um, it's a paper kind of uh, presenting different concepts of uh, indigenous worldviews. Um, and it's really fascinating. It's really cool. And I'm like, I, thank you so much for sending it to me because I've never heard of it before. And I was like reading it to get ready for the show. And I was like, yes, 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 yeah. yes. Yeah, so. <laughs> for sure to start. And just even the visual of the four R's because it's like mm. a cyclical as opposed yeah. to the two P's, which is like, and one thing I like to mm. clarify is when we talk about power in this context is the two P's is power and profit. Um, we're talking about power through force. Right. Mm -hmm. But like, I think like the cyclical nature of the um, four R's creates this like community empowerment through like Mm -hmm. regeneration instead of force. Yes. Yeah. It's really powerful stuff. And I'm going to go and link it in the episode. But before we run out of time, where can we find uh, the main line online and where can we find you? Um, yeah, I'm really um, encouraging folks to sign up for our Patreon. Um, that's a, a great way to support us right now. It's patreon.com slash mainline zine. And that's where I'm going to be spending more of my time and energy as opposed to the Instagram and like Twitter. But if you want to follow me personally on those platforms, I'm at Asia's ATL. Um, I can text them to you on Instagram and at sounds like Asia on twitter and mainline is at mainline zine for instagram and twitter you can also donate to us on our website um if you don't want to sign up for the patreon but i don't know why you wouldn't because we have a lot of we're going to be talking more about decolonization abolition and mutual aid specifically for atlanta and exploring anti-racist feminism there very cool can't wait i look at all the bonus content i'm a huge fan thank you so much (laughs) i'm glad that you're there that makes me happy yeah, yeah, absolutely. And we'll, def- we'll definitely have to have you back on again, because I feel yes. like we only really just touched the surface of what I wanted us to talk about. Um, and But this is all very illuminating and very fascinating. And that's what I love about this show is we kind of just go in our own like wave of what we're doing and it kind of works out. And uh, <laughs> it, it also helps that we have fascinating guests. So thank you for joining. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, I would love to be back. And yeah, let's do a crossover sometime. Yes, that would yeah. be great. Before we go, let's do our hot girl shit of the week because, you know, we need to we need to end this on a high note. I'll start with Yessie. Yessie, what was your hot girl shit this week? My <laughs> hot girl shit this week. Oh, man. I'm on the hot seat right now. Um, My hot girl shit this week is, ooh, here's one. So I'm a parent. Um, I have a two-year-old. And, you know, parenting is like, parenting is a full-time job on top of working a job. And so my hot girl shit this week was that just communicating with my husband and taking time to not only have a date, which we had last week, but I also got to go out on my own last night and like go to a show and see a DJ and stuff. And it was very, like, it was very affirming that my husband supported me in like doing things like a grown up. So that's my hot girl Hell shit. Hell yeah. Asia, how are you feeling? What's your hot girl? Yeah, shit? let's hear it. That's the, I want to hear Rara. I want to hear Rara sex. Oh, yeah. so I feel like last week mine was like a lot more interesting, but this week it's more like ADHD hot girl shit. Um, oh yeah, we all got because, it. Let's go. Because even though it was raining 
and shitty and gross outside i walked to the laundry room in our apartment and i did a load of laundry and i made it through that which is like for me that's like one of my eight like tasks in my life that is incredibly hard to do for some reason mm -hmm. um and is like one of the reasons why i was like thinking i had adhd last year to begin with i was like i can't ever seem to do the laundry it's so stupid that was one of the reasons why i decided to go and try to get a diagnosis um so i like today i was just able to do it and it was like not a big deal and i was like hell yeah i finally fucking did the laundry without having like a, a breakdown <laughs> So, Hell so yeah. 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 That's a big deal. <laughs> I don't know what it, so I'm gonna go out of the scope of a week, but I guess like mm -hmm. more recently, not too far. I don't know what time is anymore. But, you can do whatever um, you want. You're the guest here. My hot girl energy shit right now is stepping away from toxic family systems that yes. no longer serve me um, and disengaging from instead of, you know, trying to wait for people like that to change, just asking myself what it is that I need to change that I think I need from them and then I realized I need nothing from them so mm. <laughs> I disengaged and then I flew out I was in Atlanta for a couple months doing work on the ground and I flew uh, back out to Portland where I'm currently um, cleaning out my storage unit and packing my car to drive down the coast um, wow. and just do whatever the fuck I want hell yeah so I go cool. back to Atlanta next month so that's the most hot girl shit just being like, uh, fuck it. I just like, <laughs> solo road trip. What's up? It's like, what does your higher self want? It's like, she just wants to turn up music real loud and drive down the California coast. <laughs> so that's why I'm going to LA. It's <laughs> so, so beautiful. Like the one yeah. on one, that's like the yeah. most. Or, or are you doing the PCH? Like, I don't know yet, um, but I just know I'm doing it by myself. The last time I like, I, when I drove up the coast this time last year, I was with um, someone who like, you know, kind of bummed. They didn't want to do any of the things I wanted to do. Ew. They only did what they wanted. And I was like, so I'm going to do a do-over. And yeah, just like, yeah, hot girl summer in December. So yeah, <laughs> it's still pretty so. nice here. So like, yeah, I was going to say, y'all yeah. are so lucky out there. Like, oh my God. Yes. When yeah. I left LA and to come back to the gray Atlanta, <laughs> to winter i was like i just want to go back i just want to so go back. funny because it's like 65 degrees and i'm like i'm so cold <laughs> it's a oh. chilly <laughs> i wear like a turtleneck and a hoodie and i'm like oh oh we need to turn on the heater oh. yeah portland, is, portland it's like cold and foggy and wet and i'm just like atlanta was like 70 degrees the other day it wasn't like yeah that it was nice the other day yeah it gets cold at night but portland is being very poor Portland right now uh but I've been watching so appreciate that yeah <laughs> <laughs> but yeah I'm heading south so it'll be well, good well hell yeah um yeah good luck on your road trip and I hope you yeah. do something really cool and magical on the way uh back to Atlanta so hell yeah yeah. All right, y'all. Um, and this was a free episode. Um, we're so stoked to have guests like Asia Arnold on and yes, yes. we do it all. We do it all with the support of our lovely Patreon uh, folks. You can subscribe to the three or five dollar level to support us and you get every other episode as a bonus episode. So there's plenty of shit for you to like go and listen to and read and i'm adding pictures and videos and all sorts of stuff it's happening folks patreon.com slash hot girl agenda thank you asia so much thank you, thank for you. joining us today and we will see you next time on hga bye yeah bye, bye.